Welcome to the Talent Talk with Robert Walters podcast, where we speak to business leaders around the globe to bring you the latest trends and insights from the world of work. Hello and welcome to Talent Talk with Robert Walters. I'm Andy McLean, a journalist and podcaster based in Sydney, Australia. In this podcast mini-series, we're exploring what diversity, inclusion and equity really means for employers and employees. We're going beyond the slogans and behind the scenes to reveal the real benefits, challenges and solutions in hiring and retaining a diverse workforce. Along the way, you'll hear voices and ideas from a whole range of backgrounds. And in today's episode, I'm particularly delighted to be speaking with Australian business leader Anne Loveridge. Anne is a non-executive director of National Australia Bank, Platinum Asset Management and NIB Holdings. And she's also a director of Destination New South Wales and a member of Chief Executive Women and a member of the International Women's Forum. And she's a former deputy chair of PwC Australia and a former chair of the Bell Shakespeare Theatre Company. So in this episode of Talent Talk, we view diversity and inclusion from the top of organisations. We reflect on Anne's career journey from accounting roles into senior leadership positions and we look at how boards and executive teams can tap into people from diverse backgrounds to make better business decisions. Here's our discussion. The first question, Anne, is one that we ask everybody at the start of our mini-series and that is, what does diversity mean to you personally? Ultimately, it means to me people who've had different life experiences, which drives different perspectives. So diversity can come in many guises. It can be gender, age, cultural backgrounds, professional disciplines, life experiences, which may have come from different jobs, roles in different environments, just growing up in a different environment or culture. So, yeah. People who have got different life experiences and different bring different perspectives is what it means to me. Mm. And, and I know, Anne, that you've come originally from an accounting background uh, where, you know, dollars and cents make sense. Uh, I'm just interested if you've got any thoughts on why diversity and inclusion boost the bottom line of businesses. Well, the fact that you bring different life experiences brings different pattern recognitions is is one of the ways I'd express it. And they drive your assumptions and your decisions. They also help you make quick decisions, having certain pattern recognitions. And those different assumptions can lead to different conclusions or outcomes. They're not right or wrong. There's not There's not one that's right and one that's wrong. But just having those different assumptions tested leads to a richer conversation and a discussion about probability of outcomes. And so I could illustrate it by example of um, launching a new product. How will your customers respond? Well, it depends on your assumptions about what customers, different demographics of customers want. um, And that will drive how you position your product, how you price your product and how you market the product and ultimately the success of it. So having diversity in the team that's discussing the prop, the, this at the start 
enables you to consider multiple possible outcomes and then decide on the probability, of, you know, the range of probabilities in, in those outcomes. So that should increase the likelihood of success. It should avoid waste, which could be costs, and it could increase the sales or profitability. That's really interesting. I mean, in a funny way, what, what you're talking about here is is partly risk management and also kind of um, exploiting opportunities and that diversity and inclusion actually helps you with both of those things. Exactly right. I mean, you, you, you could see it very narrowly as a risk management and it certainly should be a risk management, but hopefully it also helps you innovate and have the courage to experiment because you've got people with different experiences sort of having the imagination of how that might work. Yeah, that's beautifully put. Now, Anne, I want to take you back in time. So we're gonna we're gonna step into the TARDIS, my time machine. And I'm gonna I want to go back all the way back to 1997. Now, in 1997, after your maternity leave, you became the first ever PwC Australia partner to work part time. There were hardly any female partners in the firm then too. So it's often said when we talk about diversity, that you need to see people like yourself in leadership roles in order to aspire to those roles. So I suppose my question is, thinking back to 1997, and when you were looking around, where did you get your inspiration from? Were there any female role models back then or, or any mentors that were sort of influential? Certainly, it does help pave the way. I think if you've seen someone with similar views, values, aspirations, uh, achieve uh, something that you are interested in achieving. And you're right, the examples in senior roles were either single women or women without children, following the male model of long hours without any domestic distractions. And so it wasn't that a a woman couldn't succeed. And so there were um, a number of females both in in partnership, I mean, a handful, literally sort of like three or four uh, in the partnership at the time before me. But actually, I probably had more in common with some of the senior male partners who had families and some of whom may have had a working spouse. And so actually what you were looking for or what I was looking for was an ability to have a degree of work-life balance that I didn't see in many, a lot of people who had a very, would appear to have had been their lives to being dominated very heavily by work. And they had other people managing their domestic life for them or their family life for them. And that wasn't what the way I wanted to, to live. So, so the mentors in my case were all men, but they were people who were empathetic to what I wanted to do. Um, they, as I say, they had a strong work-life balance traits. They may have had a working spouse. And importantly, they had a belief in diversity that at the very least, we shouldn't be wasting 50% of the talent that we were recruiting and investing in. So there's a combination of things around, you know, there were people having that intellectual conversation around how do we make sure we don't waste the talent. I was involved in those sorts of conversations. How could I be part of proving that it is, you know, ridiculous that you can't overcome this um, apparent challenge of, of not keeping women in the profession after they've, um, when they've got more, more family responsibilities. And that was, I guess, how I was encouraged, inspired around, well, intellectually, we want to make a difference. These people are prepared to support me, make that difference. And I believe this is how it can be done. Okay. And then if we kind of 
look across the span of time since the 1990s, um, I just wonder what are the standout changes that you've observed in the workplace for women, specifically in in leadership roles? And and perhaps when you speak with young women today, um, do you see a, a difference in their expectations compared to when you were starting out? A lot has changed and a lot hasn't changed, I guess. And so it depends on whether you want to be glass half full or glass half empty. So, I mean, I'd point to the fact that there's many more female leaders in CEOs, politicians, senior bureaucrats, partners in, in, you know, professional firms, journalists even. The fact is that we've got several who are all different is a great thing because it demonstrates there's not one model. You know, not, not every single female is the same not everyone who is having a family will manage it in the same way because your your context and support networks may be different your ambitions for uh, each member of the partnership in in the family may be different so so I think that that's a really big difference there are many examples um not enough of course but there are there's not just sort of a single one that you point to that oh, Margaret Thatcher's the way you do, you know, leadership in politics or um, whatever the examples would have been available in the 1990s. So that's a change. I think what still needs to change is the social expectations around both male and female roles. And so two of my favourite titles are Annabelle Crabbe's books that she's written on the wife, the wife drought and men at work, the parenthood trap, because they both point to the need to change social expectations as well as work expectations. Now, we've changed work expectations for women, but we haven't necessarily changed social expectations. We have not changed either work expectations or social expectations for men anywhere near what we have for women. And that in turn impacts how people make decisions about which members of the family will be undertaking which roles. So I think one of the things that has changed is that men are now agitating for this difference. And so when I speak to young women, there's a lot less likely to be the expectation that at some stage, if they're going to have a family in a traditional, um, you know, family unit, that that it would be the female automatically who would step back. Now, when I look at PwC and other large accounting firms today, I, I now see lots of women in senior roles. Indeed, Deloitte had a female CEO not so long ago. So when you look back at PwC and your time there, were you able to, I suppose, enable and facilitate more women to to reach that partnership level? And if so, I just wonder if you had any sort of tips or advice for um, other female leaders or indeed male leaders who are trying to open up the doors and, and maybe smash that glass ceiling or maybe just edge it open a little bit further for people. The first thing I think about is if you're recruiting, promoting, attracting people who are different from what has gone before into an organization, you want lots of people around to make sure that that's a success because that that person of difference is gonna be very obvious. And if it doesn't work out well, it'll make it doubly harder for the next time somebody wants to um, experiment or you know choose someone with a, with a different background, look, appearance to, to, into a role. So I think, 
both for myself and for those people who championed me into the role of partnership. It was very important for all of us that it was successful. And so that would have been the first thing, sort of make sure that you put in, you know, the right mechanisms to make sure that, you know, the first time you're doing it is, it is as successful as it possibly can be. That can be obviously, you know, largely on the shoulders of the person you recruit, but it can certainly be aided and abetted by, by the people around to make sure that, that that's the case too. So there was certainly make, you know, put all the support in to make the first one successful, bring, bring others in as a deliberate effort, as a deliberate target that you're not, uh, and, and then you get to this target quota argument, you're not doing it as a quota, you're not just putting people in, but you have a target around, you want the room to look like this. You want the room to, to reflect the Australian society in which we're living. And if it doesn't, well, which are the bits that you've got to work on? So I think that's about normalizing. There are different ways of doing things, breaking down this belief that there's only one way of doing things, which involves, you know, being in the office by 7.30 and not leaving till seven and therefore not being the person who, you know, is involved in those domestic duties. One of, I mean, one of the things of many that we, we certainly were focused on was around breaking down unconscious bias and reminding people that it exists and it's not bad and you're not evil and that we all do it. In a practical sense, what we did was identify some of those potential biases that we all held and then when we were in a room determining recruitment or promotion of candidates, uh, have someone in the room just there to listen for that bias, to call it out. And, you, you know, you end up with a language that we all use around that we're sort of saying, oh, you know, this is how we recognize someone's confident or this is how we recognize someone's ambitious. And if you've called out in advance, well, actually, do we know that that's always the case? Um, you're more likely to succeed. So that was that was probably a big one, you know, shining a light on our tendency to follow patterns which had been based on an Anglo-Saxon male primary breadwinner stereotype. Yeah, that's and that's so practical, Anne. That's so, such a practical piece of advice, that. So, so, I mean, and then it's around, look at, and this is always hard, but look at capability, not experience just because someone hasn't done the same job doesn't mean to say you know they can't do it do a different thing what 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 are the you break down what are the capabilities you need you know and you might need someone who can budget and build relationships well that experience can be (laughs) can be found in many different roles not necessarily having spent the last five years in a professional services firm doing (laughs) finance work you know so but, but also the, the other one, actually, that I was going to reference is much of the change can be quite subtle and is often social. And it's around the social norms you have at the start of a meeting even or when you first meet someone and you think about putting them at their ease. And, and I, I think, you know, I suspect nearly everyone's got a lot better at this, but I can, I can look back to the 1990s and know that every meeting got started with a discussion of sport, footy or golf. And part of how I made myself succeed by taking an interest in footy, sport or golf, because I knew it would be the icebreaker, even though it wasn't something that I was otherwise following. And and it wasn't intended, it wasn't 
conscious. It was just uh, the way the way I start a conversation on a Monday morning is talking about the sport results because that's what everybody's watched, isn't it? <laughs> well, maybe not. <laughs> Yeah, that, wow, that's that's so funny, isn't it? I'm wondering now whether I should uh, brush up on my rugby league knowledge. Actually, the, one of the people I know who's a big rugby league fan and actually works at Robert Walters uh, is an enormous Panthers fan, so maybe I should be speaking to her first. Sometimes, though, and, and I do sort of give this advice to people to, to sort of not make that being evil, if you like, is just be interested in what you think the other person might be interested in. So it might not necessarily be your interest, but be curious about other people. So if they're of a different faith, at least have the knowledge that that faith is celebrated, you know, on a particular day of the week or not, or in a, you know, and so then have a conversation about that, or if they've come from a particular part of the world you know be conscious of what the current events are that are going on in that part of the world and you know have a conversation about that because well you're you're trying to pick a topic that you think that they're probably more familiar with than you are and so you know they can be um feeling comfortable and confident about it that you're not testing them or trying to catch them out yeah, absolutely. And if you think about that from a personal point of view, that's the great joy of working in a diverse environment, isn't it? Yeah. You know, I think back to when I used to work in London and I worked in a in a team in local government uh, in South London and we had people of every background. We had people from all over the world. We had different religions. We had different, you know, sexualities. And it was just such a melting pot, such an interesting experience to discover, you know, what Caribbean food was like and all these other sort of little things, you know. Yeah, 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 no, absolutely. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about where you are now. So, so after three decades at PwC, you embarked on your portfolio career and serving on various boards of directors which we've referenced at the start of this episode I just wondered like how did you go about making that happen and, and do you have any tips for listeners who are aspiring themselves to board positions one day yeah I the the key thing I is to understand what the role of a board member is to the extent you can so um, speaking to people who are on board so or undertaking an AICD course or things like that helps for those who haven't had exposure to boards in their everyday life. I actually did because of my role at PwC, but certainly if I had not had that, there are other ways of getting getting some of those um, insights. And then just realise that you're not part of the management team when you join a board, but you're going to want to gain the respect of the, the team for ideas, challenges, skills, external perspectives that you beget, you bring. So in, a, in its broadest sense, that's what you will bring as a board member, an external perspective, some experiences from other walks of life that will be relevant to the conversation in terms of, yeah, inspiring, innovating, challenging, generating ideas. So then I think it's about having clarity about what it is that you can offer a board so in terms of experience in a sector, maybe, uh, which an industry, or it could be a functional discipline, so HR, finance, digital, IT, and then your interpersonal skills about how you think you can help lead, influence, challenge, or support in a, in a board environment. And now the number one tip, I would say, is volunteer for a not-for-profit board. <laughs> My first board was Bell Shakespeare. And 
in that case, I, I wasn't experienced in the sector, but I was very interested in the sector. I was a fan of the company. I had long gone to productions and I was interested in, in bringing others to, to the company. And so I was involved in um, some of the events that they did with corporates and so forth. So inviting other senior people from other organisations, which is part of uh, what a company, a, a, a not-for-profit often needs to do, which is build its profile, have more people understand what it does. And those people may then contribute to the not-for-profit by way of providing expertise, providing expertise at a, at a you know, a, a pro bono or a, um, a, a lower rate than they would for commercial purposes. And or actually, if you need philanthropists and you have a fundraising arm, those people may be interested in, in giving some of their own, their own money to, to support. Hmm. Uh, now, Robert Walters recently held an event with Ida Buttrose, and she talked quite a bit about making your voice heard um, when she joined boards. So I just wondered, you know, if we think about the people listening who and they're perhaps just joined boards or they're new to boards, I just wondered if you had any perspectives or suggestions on how to ensure that you do have a voice and that you're heard and that you are... Um, contributing to a kind of diverse mix of perspectives around the boardroom table? One of the best pieces of advice, I think, is, I mean, A, listen carefully, and B, um, when you're, if you think that what people are talking about is wrong <laughs> or you have a completely different view, um, it's not often helpful to start with that point What's more helpful to say is, why do you think that? Because that's not how I see it. And so then you actually unpack the basis of people's decisions or assumptions. And so then often um, you'll actually discover that your assumption was completely different from their assumption. And so you don't disagree with the conclusion they've reached based on their assumption but you're then curious about why they've got that assumption because you've got differences, a different view. And you can have a much better conversation than just going straight into battle about your conclusions wrong. And I have seen a lot of people go into battle with your conclusions wrong and it's not very productive. And if you're not careful, you never get to the core of the matter that you want to discuss and you can end up not having the impact you would like to have by uh, by offering your point of view because people are just saying, well, I disagree and, you know, move on. And then the next time you say, but what about this? They just, well, I disagree. And you can, you know, you can sound like a broken record. So if you don't want to be a broken record on a topic in a, in a boardroom, you need to get down to unpacking why is it that, that you've got these different points of view and then agree that you may just have, a different, you know, like my life experience leads me to say this, your life experience leads you to say that. Back to my earlier point, neither are right, neither are wrong. They form part of the probability of outcomes, you know, that are well, you know, there's more people think this and think that. And so the probability of outcomes are yours is a possible probability outcome, but actually we've discounted it or not. So <laughs> it's good advice in a boardroom, but it's also good advice just in life generally. I think that's uh, that's great. 
Yeah. I just, I, I find it fascinating how often I go into meetings and I hear people say something that disagree with the proposition that is being put forward. And I can sort of see where the trail of their assumptions start from. That's because you've come from this place and you think that, and you think everyone thinks like you. That's so true. I, I can, I can picture moments in my own career in, when those sort of um, those conversations have happened. That's that's beautifully put. Um, now, of course, another really important role for boards is appointing executive leaders, uh, and Australia is making some progress in terms of uh, improving the diversity in executive teams. Although we've still undoubtedly got further to go. So, I just wondered, um, you know, as a board member yourself. How do you think um, we can ensure that executive teams are more diverse in future? It goes back to some of the things I was mentioning earlier. I mean, the first one is start fishing in different pools. Um, are you looking at it's sort of like when people say there's no, there's no talented women for the role or there's no talented people with a certain background for the role? It's like, have you really looked? If you really looked for the most talented people with those characteristics, you'd probably be surprised what you would find if you looked for that first. Now, it's not necessarily, as I say, it's not you're not trying to do a quota. You're just trying to target. We want more people who look a little more different from what we might already have. You've got to start looking in different places because if you look in the same place, you're going to get the same result. And assess capability, not just experience. So don't assume to be a senior executive in a bank, you must have worked in a bank for the last 30 years because by definition you're then going to reduce your the pool in which you're, you're fishing. Now, I don't, I don't think anybody would do that, but, um, but there is a tendency to say, I want someone who's worked in an organisation in a similar industry at a similar scale in a similar jurisdiction and actually, by the time you start putting all those restrictions on it, you're you're going to make it um, more difficult. Now, if you recruit someone out of a different jurisdiction, of course, there are going to be challenges, which then goes back to my point around, well, if you decide to do that, what are you going to put around that person to make them help them be successful? <clears throat> now, you may have to put some different um structures, processes around someone, which doesn't mean to say they're less able because you're valuing the fact that they're bringing something different and diverse to the pool um, versus someone who's already worked in the industry and always done it this way and knows this country's rules and regulations and norms. So um, fish in different pools, but be prepared to put different um, mechanisms around to make those people a success. Um, make diversity a goal. So when you're doing your recruitment every time you want a diverse group of people brought to you, not every single appointment has to be diverse, but always be aware that every time you make a, an appointment that is non-diverse, you're then going to be changing the, the decision-making for the next appointment. And, and think about it over a, um, a five-year period, not just a one-year period, because in the next five years, we may be recruiting for these different roles, these different sets of expertise and experience, and we'd like some diversity in the pool. So when you're doing your search, often I think it's helpful to um, have people identify, look, I know you were asking us for a CFO, 
and you would like to have someone with a non-Anglo background, just want you to know that there's this person who might be a really good marketing person or HR person with a non-Anglo background, probably not ready yet, but in three, you know, we should keep our eye on them. And so it's that longer term thinking and planning, looking at it as a team, not just every individual appointment. And so having a target in five years time, we want to have a team that looks more diverse than it is. And if you keep that front of mind, every time you're doing an appointment of someone of non-diverse background, you're, uh, you realize you're, you know, lowering your chances of meeting your goal. It's interesting, Anne, because a number of times the way we've talked about diversity and inclusion and achieving it, it goes back to something that Robert Walters talks a lot about, which is around seeing potential. You know, it's, it's actually about saying this person has the aptitude and the capability and the potential and spotting that is just so important, isn't it? Exactly right. And it may mean you end up finding a role for someone in the organisation that wasn't the role you were looking for, but because you see this person has talent and potential, you want to get them in the organisation and then they could be an internal promotion later down the track. Now, speaking of potential, before we uh, wrap up, I did just want to ask you about looking ahead. So you're obviously, you know, senior level in a lot of organisations. So you're seeing the top tier of, of several businesses across Australia. When you look at the next 10 years, do you feel optimistic about the prospects for greater diversity in leadership levels of organisations? I'm a natural optimist. So whilst I'll be the first to say we've got lots to do regarding diversity, lots to do regarding gender still. I mean, the you know, the episodes of the last two years would have demonstrated that to us. You know, the, the Me Too movement, the, the terrible report into parliamentary workplace behaviours, you know, the, the, all the observations that Grace Tame was able to make during her period as Australian of the Year. So there's lots to do. But if I put it, I, I often tell this story about my grandmother's life, my mother's life and my life and how different they have been in terms of our professional opportunities. And so maybe 10 years is too short a span to actually feel like you've really seen a difference. But generationally, there's enormous difference. In three generations, things have changed massively. Is there a huge difference that I can see today for my daughter compared, who's, you know, just embarking on her, her career in the the workforce yes and no you know some of the times I sort of think wow isn't it terrible that that you know some of the conversations are still the same as the ones that I feel were happening 20 years ago but in another regard I think well but so much has changed you know the opportunity is there the the expectation and the knowledge that they will be able to take uh time out that that men in their the co- male colleagues in the workforce are able to do things that they weren't previously able to do and that we're even having conversations about non-gender diversity targets in our workforces well that was unheard of so it probably will never feel that it's moving fast enough you know but I am optimistic that we are on a journey where it's changing and you 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 have to sort of stop and look back 20 years to realize how much has changed to sort of go wow you know that when I started work it was not paid maternity leave let alone paid parental leave now I mean that's mind-blowing now. So they may seem small, but they, they are quite um, 
significant changes. So I certainly think it will be different in another two generations. And I hope that the equivalent of my grandchildren's generation will look back and sort of be able to make that same comment about their life versus their parents versus their grandparents. Yeah, well, look, I mean, as you say, progress has been made and there's still much to do. I want to thank you today because some of the tips uh, and the practical advice that you've shared and your reflections on your experiences, it's all part of the journey that we're on. And so by sharing those with other leaders, uh, hopefully we can, you know, incrementally keep uh, making progress together. So thank you so very much and for your time today. A pleasure. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for listening to today's episode, which is part of Robert Walter's mini-series tackling diversity, inclusion and equity from numerous perspectives. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can subscribe to our channel and listen to our other Talent Talks episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening and goodbye for now.